This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Should I say my full name? However you want to say it. Okay. However, yeah. I'm Zach Wood. I'm a writer, a freelance journalist, and speaker. But you're really are a student, right? I mean, I'm a senior at Williams College, graduating in about a week. <laughs> right, okay. Zach grew up in a pretty progressive family, a family that didn't shy away from difficult conversations. Yeah, so a, a liberal household and really valued issues relating to gender and race and pushing for racial equality. And I guess we should mention, because it's a radio, nobody can see you, you are African-American. I am, yes. So once Zach got to Williams College as a first-year student, he looked forward to that same kind of exchange of ideas. And he joined a student organization. It's called Uncomfortable Learning. And the members of that group invite provocative speakers onto campus. But pretty soon after Zach joined, he discovered that just inviting these guests would create big problems. Here's Zach Wood on the TED stage. In 1994, Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein co-authored The Bell Curve, an extremely controversial book which claims that on average, some races are smarter and more likely to succeed than others. Murray and Herrnstein also suggest that a lack of critical intelligence explains the prominence of violent crime in poor African-American communities. But Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein are not the only people who think this. In 2012, a writer, journalist, and political commentator named John Derbyshire wrote an article that was supposed to be a non-black version of the talk that many black parents feel they have to give their kids today. Advice on how to stay safe. In it, he offers suggestions such as, do not attend events likely to draw a lot of blacks, stay out of heavily black neighborhoods, and do not act the Good Samaritan to blacks in distress. And yet, in 2016, I invited John Derbyshire, as well as Charles Murray, to speak at my school, knowing full well that I would be giving them a platform and detention for ideas that I despised and rejected. John Derbyshire is, so he was a writer for the National Review. Uh, He has made claims such as intelligent, well-socialized African-Americans are as rare as uh, fancy commercial jets, right? So things like that. Very inflammatory, very incendiary. And he was a Trump supporter down the line. So so why did you invite him to speak on campus? At the time, you know, I see Donald Trump is on the rise. I think it's important for William College students to understand what it is that he thinks what his base thinks. You know, you have this entire segment of the American electorate that supports him. And I don't think it's safe for us to assume that we know why. And I thought that it could be valuable to have someone on campus who could express this viewpoint, especially someone who's, you know, written a lot in the National Review and been a part of various public forums and so forth, about why it is that they think Donald Trump should be at the helm and and really articulating those views on immigration and race specifically. So what happened after you invited him? So I I made the invitation, and I would say within about five minutes, it it could have been less, I was getting all kinds of comments, people saying things, you're a traitor to your race, we can't believe you've done this. Every time I looked down at my phone, Hmm. and then about two days after that, it was either two or three days after that, Adam Falk, who was the former president of Williams College, disinvited John Derbyshire. And so it was canceled. Right now, on college campuses across the U.S. and in many parts of the world, there's a debate about freedom of speech, about who has the right to speak, and whether people who spread incendiary and ugly ideas should be given a platform. So today on the show, we're going to talk about free speech and the ideas and arguments about whether all speech should be treated in the same way. And we want to explore a simple question. Is hearing from those we deeply disagree with worth it? 
Well, for Zach Wood, the answer is yes, which is why even though Williams College ended up uninviting John Derbyshire, Zach continued to invite others like him to speak. No one likes being offended, and I certainly don't like hearing controversial speakers argue that feminism has become a war against men or that blacks have lower IQs than whites. Many argue that by giving these people a platform, you're doing more harm than good, and I am reminded of this every time I listen to these points of view and feel my stomach turn. Yet tuning out opposing viewpoints doesn't make them go away because millions of people agree with them. In order to understand the potential of society to progress forward, we need to understand the counterforces. By engaging with controversial and defensive ideas, I believe that we can find common ground, if not with the speakers themselves, then with the audiences they may attract or indoctrinate. Through engaging, I believe that we may reach a deeper understanding of our own beliefs and preserve the ability to solve problems, which we can't do if we don't talk to each other and make an effort to be good listeners. Why do you think that there are so many students and so many people uh, your age who just disagree with you, who think that, that the idea of unlimited, uninhibited, free speech isn't something that all university campuses should accept? I mean, do, do you think that they're all wrong? I think it's a, it's a complicated conversation. I think a few things are going on. I think one thing that's going on is you have progressivism itself. You know, you had efforts beginning... 60s, 70s, 80s, let's increase the presence of minorities on campus, right? And so if we're trying to make progress and we want America to be more inclusive, you can't just increase diversity, but you want people to feel welcome. That becomes very important. But what that ends up meaning is that if students are saying, I don't feel comfortable or welcome or included because of X, because of X person, because of X microaggression, because of X speaker who's been invited, there's this tension then between the effort to be inclusive and the effort to make sure that we have academic freedom and we're protecting free expression. So, so, I'm, try, so I'm trying to think about this from the perspective of a, of a student who might feel offended by this. Like, let's say you're a student of color, you know, and particularly a male, you're a first generation college student. And, you know, over the course of your life, you're just used to getting pulled over by cops because you're driving in a in a neighborhood or walking in a neighborhood that's predominantly white. Or you might be followed around in a convenience store or in a department store. You know, somebody might treat you with suspicion, right? And so you, you deal with these indignities throughout your life. And then you show up on this predominantly white college campus. Right. And, uh, and then it's like, hey, tonight speaking is John Derbyshire. I mean, I could understand why that student might not feel safe on campus hearing from somebody right, right, yeah. like that, you know? Absolutely. There are you know, aspects of those things you've described. I've experienced those things myself. Um, you know, that's why I, I do understand that it's really difficult for students. And I would say that I am not saying that I think every student on this campus should say, oh boy, John Derbyshire is coming to campus. Let me go and read everything he's written and prepare to question this guy during the Q&A and to make apparent to the audience what is wrong with what he's saying. But I, I do think that for two and a half hours, we should have a space in which those students who want to, who have a desire to engage in that kind of intellectual discourse should be able to do so. So that's my view. It's not that I think everyone should be engaged. I look out at what's happening on college campuses and I see the anger and I get it. But what I wish I could tell people is that it's worth the discomfort, it's worth listening, and that we're stronger, not weaker, because of it. When I think about my experiences with uncomfortable learning and I reflect upon them, I do feel a sense of hope when I think about the individual interactions that I've been able to have with students who both support the work that I'm doing and who feel challenged by it and who do not support it. It's my belief that to achieve progress in the face of adversity, we need a genuine commitment to gaining a deeper understanding of humanity. I'd like to see a world with more leaders who are familiar with the depths of the views of those they deeply disagree with so that they can understand the nuances of everyone they're representing. I see this as an ongoing process involving constant learning, and I'm confident that I'll be able to add value down the line 
if I continue building empathy and understanding through engaging with unfamiliar perspectives. So, so earlier you mentioned um, Charles Murray, who has argued that um, that African Americans have lower IQs than whites, and and who I should note he was allowed to come speak uh, on your campus at Williams. What is it that you wanted students to learn from him? So one, when he has forty five minutes to get up on stage, I want people to pay close attention to the logical flow of his argument to the evidence he's providing, to the lack thereof, right? I want people to see what kinds of questions make him backpedal, what kind of questions make him pause, right? Where is he let? Because this is in the public sphere, in the political sphere, when you're getting things done, it's always going to be contentious, whether the issue is welfare, whether it's crime, whether it's taxation, it doesn't, right? And so understanding, strengthening your own arguments by really assessing what are the weak points And then trying to see what are the most effective ways for you to expose what's wrong with that argument Hmm. so that then the people in the audience who might be undecided or who might know a bit less now can see for themselves why it is that Charles Murray is wrong. Okay, but but some students, right, would say just by inviting him, you're, you're legitimizing his viewpoint. You're giving him a platform. But it sounds like what you're saying is that by bringing somebody like him to campus, you're basically building resilience for those students who might be offended? Yes, exactly. And that even if it's one student, if it's five students, there is progress that is being made. And that I think it would be far worse to suppress speech, that it would be far worse to say that we shouldn't be engaged in robust and open discussion, that it would be far worse to say that we should tune out that which makes us feel very, very uncomfortable. How do you know, Zach, that you're on the right side of history on this issue? I guess I would have to say that when I look at the thinkers I admire, from the Founding Fathers to Martin Luther King Jr., I would say that they always engaged with the people they disagreed with the most, even when it was very, very difficult for them to do so. And that if you look at free speech and the history of free speech in this country, it has been free speech itself that allowed the, from the abolitionist movement to women's suffrage, to the civil rights movement, to the gay rights movement, to be successful. That's what allowed for those dissenting opinions to be aired and re-aired and to apply social pressure upon government in ways that led to positive social change. That's Zach Wood. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the right to speak. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Honest Tea, celebrating 20 years of delicious and organic tea for everyone. All teas are real brewed and use fair trade certified leaves and sugar to create great tasting tea that's just a tad sweet. Visit honesttea.com slash podcast to learn more about Honest Tea and give your whole family something refreshingly honest to enjoy. Thanks also to Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. And it isn't just for last-minute bookings. You can book for tonight, tomorrow, and beyond. It's the go-to app whether you're a planner or a procrastinator. You can lock down your vacation plans now or play it by ear. To start finding great deals at great hotels, download the Hotel Tonight app right now. I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of the podcast Hidden Brain. All summer long, we're sharing stories about reinventing yourself as part of a series that we call You 2.0. Rebels are not troublemakers. They're people who break rules that should be broken. Subscribe and embrace your inner rebel. No leather jacket required. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the freedom to speak the freedom to offend, and whether we can agree about what all of it means. So how would you describe, sort of describe public conversations today, like uh, like our public discourse? 
Um, well, Stephen, I'm trying to get to the issue of the president's fitness, account. which a lot of people well, are Well, I'm getting to the issue of your fitness. What I said is you mother? can pick anything you, you want. Time out. Time out. Let me finish what I was saying. I need you to retract what you said. I think our public discourse is broken. This is Jeff Howard. He teaches political science at the University College London. One reason I think our public discourse is broken is because people have the wrong kind of attitude toward the purpose of public discourse. I think people think of it as a tribal fight between different teams rather than thinking of it as a conversation. So I think when people participate in public discourse, they tend to think of themselves as tasked with scoring points for their side mm. rather than engaging authentically, sincerely, honestly in public reasoning with their fellow citizens about the kind of society we want to live in. And I think that betrays a level of arrogance and certitude, I think, is inconsistent with the complexity and the difficulty of the kinds of questions that we face in public life. Is, is, I mean, is the U.S. a place that, that is sort of the, comes closest to having free speech, you know, in, compared to any other country in the world? So I think there tends to be a very common way of thinking about the debate on freedom of speech, which is between people who are in support of free speech and then people who are critics of free speech. What kind of speech falls under the protective umbrella of free speech and what kind of speech doesn't? So the U.S. example is fascinating on this one. So the I think one of the most important opinions in the United States was a Supreme Court case in 1969 called Brandenburg v. Ohio. Number 492, Clarence Brandenburg, appellate versus Ohio. And this was a case that concerned a Ku Klux Klan leader in Ohio named Clarence Brandenburg. And what he basically did is he organized a televised rally in which he, surrounded by his cadre of armed, hooded Klansmen, talked about the importance of white supremacy. And then they go on and they say the, the Jews should go back to Israel and the blacks should go back to Africa. And talked about the importance of taking vengeance on those who obstruct the cause of white supremacy. And he was arrested for this, um, for violating an Ohio law that banned advocacy of violent criminal conduct like terrorism. And he complained that this arrest was inconsistent with his rights to free speech under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We are dealing in this situation not with an address to an evil from which we must move back to a possible restraint upon First Amendment. For we are dealing with an entry particularly into the right and then a prescription upon the right as it might engender an evil. And the Supreme Court agreed with him. God save the United States and this honorable court. And so in 1969, the Supreme Court set the standard that continues to this day that says that so long as a given instance of speech isn't deliberately endeavoring to incite crime and isn't likely to do so imminently, it has to be allowed. And that's an extremely permissive standard because it basically means you can say whatever you want. And so long as that speech isn't going to cause an imminent incidence of lawbreaking, it has to be allowed. And that kind of a view that requires imminent violence isn't found in most of the rest of the world. Here's more from Jeff Howard on the TED stage. Many democracies around the world restrict hateful speech on the grounds that it hijacks and poisons rather than enables and nourishes a culture of free expression among equals. And while that position may be mistaken, as the US Supreme Court ultimately decided it to be, it's not obviously mistaken. There are good arguments on both sides of this issue. I think a lot of our debates about politics are kind of like the debate about whether free speech protects hate speech or not. There are good arguments on both sides. But once we realize that there are good arguments on both sides of so many of the debates about which we get the most passionate in politics, it makes no sense to describe those debates and live out those debates as we so often do, as if they were grand crusades between good and evil, rather than what they really are, reasonable disagreements. Taking our fellow citizens seriously means recognizing that they have thought about these questions as hard as we have, but simply come to different answers. Do you think, especially in, in the American context, do you think that people often confuse freedom of speech with 
freedom of speech without consequence because, like, freedom of speech in the U.S. means you're not going to be incarcerated or executed basically for what you say. But it doesn't mean you're not going to be ridiculed or shamed or, or, or sort of shouted down. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we talk about free speech, we might be referring to one of two things. So first, I think sometimes when people talk about free speech, they do mean the legal right to freedom of expression as embodied in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And this is a a view of free speech according to which the government can't suppress your right to speak, but that doesn't mean you have the right to a platform at a university you might want to speak at. That doesn't mean that other people have to give you opportunities to speak. It simply means that the government may not suppress your speech. But I think when people talk about free speech, they sometimes aren't referring to the legal right. They're referring to something like a culture of free speech. They're referring to the idea that we want to live in a society that has a robust exchange of ideas whereby people aren't silenced through public opinion, where people feel confident to express what's on their mind and other people listen to what they have to say and then argue back against them if they disagree. So I just want to run one scenario by you, and I, I asked Zach Wood basically the same question, which is, say you're a minority student at at, a, at an elite university or any university, and, and you're the first kid in your family to go to college, mm-hmm. but you know over the course of your life, you're subjected to, to being watched and followed in stores or pulled over by police uh, or being you know treated differently when you go out in public. So all these little things add up, right? And then you get to college... And you find out that a speaker is coming to your campus to say that people of color aren't as intelligent as white students. I mean, I could understand why that student would feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. That almost like the university has an obligation to protect them. Yeah. Like, I don't I don't think it's crazy for that student to not want yeah, that absolutely. speaker to come to campus. Absolutely. So I, I 100% agree with that. So I think when we talk about the importance of free speech, the paradigmatic site of that conversation is what I like to call reasonable disagreement. So these are the big questions of public life where we disagree, but there are actually some pretty good arguments on both sides. And so I think that the tricky question arrives when we're talking about what I would call unreasonable disagreements, (laughs) where one of the points of view is clearly mistaken, right? So the idea that um, we should live in a white supremacist society. So I just don't think it's a debate worth having because I don't think it's worth curating that kind of a conversation. Right. It does seem to me, however, that sometimes when there are big public debates going on in society that you might nevertheless think are unreasonable, it's worth having them out on campus just in case a significant portion of your society's population supports the unreasonable view. For example, you might think that Donald Trump is just the worst president in the world, that there's just nothing that could be said for him, that he's clearly terrible and that he clearly shouldn't win re-election. So in this sense, you might think that this is people who disagree with you are being unreasonable. Well, that might be true. But the mere fact that there are millions and millions and millions of your fellow citizens who disagree with you about that means that it's worth having the conversation. But, I mean, judging by that standard, I mean, you could say, like, if you were to apply that idea and and take us back to 1938, you could say, hey, you know, look, many Germans support this man who believes that Jews are inferior and should be annihilated. So, you know, we're going to have a speaker come and represent this point of view. I mean, you could you could bring somebody from a, a conservative country where the majority of people believe that that gay people should be stoned to death. And you could say, well, we need to represent that view. Right. Like, I mean, you could justify any speaker using that argument. Right. As long as you say there's a significant chunk of people who agree with this. Yeah. So I think one important distinction to keep in mind is between debates that are taking place on campus where the purpose is to subject the speakers to a kind of gauntlet of rational interrogation. So you take a view that you think is reprehensible and you really lay it out on the table and the counter speaker does a great job of explaining why it's such a terrible view. I think we need to distinguish between a case in which you have that kind of critical rational debate from a case in which someone is giving a commencement address or they're giving a single speech where they don't have to answer to a critic who's opposing their point of view. I think the only question worth debating is whether it's sometimes sensible to have speakers with unreasonable views on campus when 
doing so serves an important educative purpose. And I think I completely agree that there will not be that many cases of this. But I think occasionally there may be cases like that. And so that's why I'm very reluctant to endorse a bright line rule that says that no unreasonable views should be represented in any debates on college campuses. Because insofar as you might have some students with those unreasonable views, And it might benefit those students to see those views dismantled in real time by smart people arguing against them. Then I think it's sometimes worth it to have those conversations. Hmm. Um, Have you ever found yourself in a position where somebody has changed your mind very quickly through reason and argument? No, I I can't immediately recall a circumstance where that has happened. I've certainly changed my mind on things by thinking them through over a period of time. But but no, I think it's actually pretty rare um, to change someone's opinion on an issue in real time. But I, I actually don't think the justification or the value of free speech depends on that kind of mechanism. Because I think that the way in which we change people's minds is gradual and largely a function of continued exposure to alternative points of view and ideas that have the effect gradually of loosening the grip of a particular conviction rather than it being a sudden change overnight. And I think that's why we need to be having even more conversations than we're currently having. Because I don't think you can change people's conversations, like the the flick of a switch. That's Jeff Howard. He teaches political science at the University College London. You can see Jeff's full talk at ted.npr.org. When I say freedom of speech, uh, what does that what does that actually mean to you? What do you, what do you, how do you define that? I think it's one of the most crucial pillars of an existing democracy. This is Elif Shafak. She's a writer and visiting professor at Oxford. The way I see it, um, for a democracy to exist and to survive and to flourish, it is not enough to have a ballot box. We definitely need rule of law, separation of powers, definitely a free and diverse media, freedom of speech, yeah? And in addition to that, minority rights. Together with all those components, we have a healthy democracy. And Elf's ideas don't just come from a theoretical understanding of democracy. They actually come from her own experiences in Turkey. It's a country with a long history of restricting freedom of speech, including a recent law called Article 301, which Elif knows very well. When I published The Bastard of Istanbul, one of my earlier novels, because the novel talks about Armenian genocide, I was directly put on trial under Article 301, and I was accused of insulting Turkishness, even though nobody knows what that means. Hmm. Article 301 is used against uh, individuals in Turkey if they dare to talk about um, some of the dark chapters of Ottoman history. You know, why shouldn't we be able to to face um, some of the saddest moments of, of our history? Uh, and celebrate the beauties as well. You know, why can't we take a more nuanced approach? So it's it's very dangerous when state elite decides what can be said, what can be written about, and impose their own official version of events on a whole society. Elif's trial took place in 2006. She was acquitted. But over the past 10 years, the situation in Turkey has gotten even worse. The country's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has consolidated power and threatened democratic institutions. Freedom of speech on trial in Turkey. He's closed down newspapers and arrested hundreds of journalists. Opposition journalists are being prosecuted in a He's carried out purges in government, the judiciary, and academia. Almost 2,000 people who's been arrested for insulting Erdogan since. And he's polarized the population. And what we've seen in Turkey is this this decline of the existing structure of democracy. We never had a proper democracy. Uh, It was always wobbly. It was always wounded. But it wasn't this bad. And unfortunately, as human beings, we tend to think that history always moves forward Mm -hmm. and that tomorrow is going to be much more progressive or advanced than today. But that is not the case necessarily. And when we look at countries like Turkey, we, we realize that history can, um, can go backwards. Is Turkey a cautionary tale for, for you know, other societies and countries that 
are starting to question the value of free speech? I think in in many ways, um, Turkey is a very important case study in itself. It really holds important lessons. For such a long time, um, many people assumed that some parts of the world, um, namely Western developed countries, were safe, stable and solid lands. And the rest of the world, particularly a region such as the Middle East, these were the liquid lands. In fact, we're all living in liquid times in which we're not sure anymore of the ground beneath our feet. It doesn't feel that solid anymore. There's a lot of uncertainty. Elif Shafak picks up the story from the TED stage. I think our world is full of unprecedented challenges. And this comes with an emotional backlash. Because in the face of high-speed change, many people wish to slow down. And when there's too much unfamiliarity, people long for the familiar. And when things get too confusing, many people crave simplicity. This is a very dangerous crossroads, because it's exactly where the demagogue enters into the picture. The demagogue understands how collective sentiments work and how he, it's usually a he, can benefit from them. He tells us that we all belong in our tribes, and he tells us that we will be safer if we're surrounded by sameness. And all around the world, when we look at how demagogues talk and how how they inspire movements, I think they have one unmistakable quality in common. They strongly, strongly dislike plurality. They cannot deal with multiplicity. Adorno used to say, intolerance of ambiguity is the sign of an authoritarian personality. But I ask myself, what if that same sign, that same intolerance of ambiguity, what if it's the mark of our times, of the age we're living in? Because wherever I look, I see nuances withering away. On TV shows, we have one anti-something speaker situated against a pro-something speaker. Yeah, it's good ratings. It's even better if they shout at each other. Even in academia, where our intellect is supposed to be nourished, you see one atheist scholar competing with a firmly theist scholar, but it's not a real intellectual exchange because it's a clash between two certainties. So slowly and systematically, we are being denied the right to be complex. Coming up in just a moment, how the shift to a more polarized world is playing out on her own college campus, and how all of this might have bigger implications for the future of democracy. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing, taking inspiration from the clouds themselves. Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Thanks also to Capital One. Capital One. Know when your credit card purchases go through with instant purchase notifications on the Capital One app so you don't miss a purchase, large or small. Technology this convenient could make history. What's in your wallet? Offered by Capital One Bank USA, NA, copyright 2018. Next time on Ask Me Another, we are joined by actress Jessica Walter. She shares tales from her lengthy career on stage and screen and her role as Lucille Bluth on Arrested Development. Find us every week on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the freedom to speak, particularly on college campuses. It's a debate Elif Shafak has seen firsthand at the universities where she's taught, in Turkey, in the US, and now in the UK. Right now at Oxford University, it is such a heated subject. You know, this 
safe spaces, uh, who should be allowed to, to speak. And I see this tendency, especially in younger people on both sides of the Atlantic, um, to limit diversity of opinions. Um, university campuses are such privileged places in so many ways where we can hear so many ideas, so many voices. If we curtail voices there, I, I, I'm not convinced that it's going to be to the benefit of students in the long run. I think it will be just the opposite. Just because I disagree with someone, uh, I have no right to say that that person cannot speak here. That is a very dangerous uh, sense of righteousness, and we won't benefit from that. Is there any speech that you think should be curtailed or regulated? Um, I think we should be offended less. We should be able to listen to, to people who have a completely different view of the world. Mm. However, I do have some red lines indeed, because I come from, again, from a country where I have seen hate speech that incites violence, especially when hate speech targets minorities, individuals, people who are powerless. So I think we need to be careful about uh, the kind of discourse that creates violence. But other than that, um, I think it's incredibly important to, to hear a diversity of opinions, especially on university campuses, where unfortunately there's a lot of anxiety, and maybe bitterness, resentment, anger. And it's an age in which emotions guide politics and political choices. But emotions can also misguide politics. What I see, especially in young people today, um, is a lot of anxiety with regards to the future. There comes a moment, it's like a tipping point or a threshold, when you get tired of feeling afraid, when you get tired of feeling anxious. And I think not only individuals, but perhaps nations too have their own tipping points. They want to divide us into tribes. They preach certainty and they like to incite dualities, but we are far more nuanced than that. So what can we do? I think we need to go back to the basics. The Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran used to say, I learned silence from the talkative and tolerance from the intolerant and kindness from the unkind. I think it's a great motto for our times. So from populist demagogues, we will learn the indispensability of democracy. And from isolationists, we will learn the need for global solidarity. And from tribalists, we will learn the beauty of cosmopolitanism and the beauty of diversity. I mean, I mean essentially what you're saying is even those voices that I, I find so disagreeable allow me to, to reflect on how much I disagree with those voices and, and help me mm -hmm. like better sharpen my own positions and views. Yes, I sincerely believe in this life, if we're going to learn anything at all, you know, we will be learning from people who are different than us. Someone who speaks like me, who dresses up like me, who votes exactly like me, is only an echo of my voice. We do not learn anything from echoes, and it's a very narcissistic existence to be surrounded by sameness. It is possible to learn the value of democracy by looking at what's happening in the world today, even though lots of negative things are clearly happening, maybe this is a golden moment for people who care to raise their voices. Uh, democracy is a fragile ecosystem. It is not something you have once and for all, and then you can just take it for granted. We have to work for it together. Elif Shafak is a novelist. Her latest book is called Three Daughters of Eve. You can find all of her talks at TED.com. What is your sort of understanding of what freedom of speech entitles a, a person in a country like the United States to do? I think free speech prevents the government from preventing speech. You have the right to stand on a sidewalk and rant and rave? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and nobody can put you in jail and no. nobody can arrest you. No, that's probably the greatest thing about this country. This is James Kerchick. He's a visiting fellow at Brookings. And about 15 years ago, James was a student at Yale. 
I was a freshman at Yale in the spring of 2003. And that semester, James was caught off guard when someone he strongly disagreed with was invited to speak on campus. The African American Cultural Center on campus had invited a poet by the name of Amiri Baraka, who passed away several years ago. And he was notorious at the time for having published a poem called Somebody Blew Up America. And in this poem that he had written, he alleged that the government of Israel had uh, warned all Israelis in Manhattan not to go to work at the Twin Towers that day. And he was invited to basically read this poem at Yale. To read that poem? Yes. Somebody blew up America. They say it's some terrorist, some barbaric Arab in Afghanistan. And it was was a fairly traumatic experience for me. I mean, I, you know, grew up in a fairly well-to-do Boston suburb, had never experienced real anti-Semitism in my life before. And then to come to Yale as a freshman and see something like this happen was disturbing. And my instinct was not to, you know, shout Mr. Baraka down. I was a columnist for the Yale Daily News, the school newspaper, uh, so I went to the event, and I sat in the back of the room. Who backed Batista, Hitler, Bilbo, Chiang Kai-shek? Ho, 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 ho. And I took notes, like a journalist does. And I actually asked a question. I said, you know, you wrote this poem where you make this assertion. Who knew the World Trade Center was going to get bombed? Who told 4,000 Israeli workers at the Twin Towers to stay home that day? You know, Why now that the poem has been read, ho, ho. I'm asking you a factual question. Do you actually believe that the government of Israel wasn't one thing or the other? He looked at me and he said, in front of a room full of my peers, 200, 300 people, uh, it looks like you have constipation of the face and you need a brain enema. And then everyone in the room laughed. Um, So it was a really traumatic experience to witness this. James Kerchick reflected on that experience from the TED stage. Now, I look back on this uh, event because it played a major role in my maturation from a teenager into an adult. In my experience at Yale of confronting very difficult ideas and vexing personal situations has informed the way that I look at the debates that are raging across this country and indeed the world about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is the most important right that we have as citizens in a liberal society. It is the freedom, the right upon which all other freedoms are contingent. And we are incredibly lucky to live in a country where we have something called the First Amendment. Only 13% of the world's population live in countries that protect freedom of speech. Now, I'm often asked, as a Jewish person and a gay man, how can you support the rights of bigots and homophobes and anti-Semites to spew their hatred and their bigotry? To which I respond, it is precisely because I'm these things that I think we have to defend the rights of everyone equally to be able to have free speech. Let's just sort of talk about this idea of speech for for a moment. Why, in your view, um, you know, should these universities, should these campuses, like, why is the, this idea of, of, of allowing anybody to come speak so important? Why do students need to hear viewpoints that may cause anxiety or trigger, you know, challenging emotions? Because that's life. Um, I mean, we have a president who, you know, triggers challenging emotions among many of us on a daily basis. You can't avoid it. And you're not going to avoid it in your, in your daily life. You're going to encounter people who disagree with you. And if going to college or university is about preparing you to be uh, a good, able, capable citizen, which is how I think most institutions of higher learning advertise themselves, then learning how to deal with people who disagree with you civilly is a fundamental part of it. I mean, universities are not, uh, they're not required to allow anybody to speak, right? I mean, the the, the First Amendment doesn't apply to a college campus necessarily. I mean, obviously, schools and universities are under no compulsion to invite certain people. But look, do I think it's a good idea that college Republicans are inviting people like Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter to campuses? No, I think it's a bad idea. Because I think that there are better people to advance the conservative or Republican point of view than these two particular personalities. And I think we've entered this unfortunate period now where it's sort of a a vicious circle where you have left-wing students getting upset and trying to shut down talks 
by these particular conservative speakers, and then conservative students on campus sort of relishing and enjoying the victim status that comes with these sorts of spats and deliberately inviting people who they know are going to provoke this response. So I don't like what's happening on college campuses, but we should be clear where the fault lies. The fault lies with the people who are protesting, in some cases violently. A crucial concept that seems to be embraced by uh, many people today is that words equal violence. Well, words are not sticks and stones. They may cause you distress, as they certainly have me, but they're not going to break your bones. And what's rather ironic about this is that often the people who make this claim that words equal violence are the ones who actually use real violence to shut down the speech of people with whom they disagree. Last year, the University of California at Berkeley had to spend $600,000 on security to protect a speaker coming to campus from a rampaging mob. Now, Yale, unfortunately, has not been immune to this intellectual discourse of censorship. A couple days before Halloween in 2015, the Yale Intercultural Affairs Council sent an email to the entire undergraduate student body in which it asked students not to wear costumes that, quote, threaten our sense of community through the process of cultural appropriation. It then sent a helpful list of costumes to avoid. Now, feeling understandably somewhat patronized by this email, many students wrote to Nicola and Erica Christakis, the master and associate master, respectively, of Silliman College. And Erica wrote uh, an email back to her students. And she said, I wonder if we should reflect more transparently as a community on the consequences of an institution exercise of implied control over college students. Have we lost faith in young people's capacity, in your capacity, to ignore or reject things that trouble you? Well, that's when all hell broke loose. The following day, a group of students confronted Nicholas in the quad of Silliman College, where they berated him over the course of several hours, screaming in his face, demanding that he apologize for the thought crimes of his wife. And then later, a group of students presented a list of demands to the president of Yale College, insisting that Nicola and Erica be fired. A common thread in these arguments in favor of censorship is that censorship helps the victims of discrimination. This is a double-edged sword that these people who are making this argument about power are making, because once you limit free speech, there's no stopping the ways in which it will be limited. And free speech has actually been the greatest tool of people without power in this country. Whether it was civil rights activists who used the right to assemble and speak to make their case, and they eventually made their case successfully to the American people, or whether it was gay activists. I mean, the gay rights movement, as we commonly understand it, started um, after police violated the association rights of gay people at the Stonewall Bar in New York in 1969, and they fought back. Um, so it's using the right of free speech that has allowed the powerless to actually achieve more power. Do you think what's happening now on some university campuses in, in the U.S. And, and even in some other countries is unique to this generation of students or, or do you think that something else is going on? I think there is a fundamental difference. I graduated from Yale in 2006, and when I look back on the Halloween costume controversy and other controversies that are happening across campuses today, something snapped in the past couple of years. There is a different notion of what freedom of speech means. If you look back at the last great student revolt in the United States, it was in the late 1960s, and you look at the free speech movement at Berkeley, what was that about? It was about protecting the rights of, you know, left-wing, anti-Vietnam War student protesters having the right to speak. They wanted to resist power, and they wanted to resist the governments in cahoots with their universities clamping down on their freedom. What are students now calling for? They, they want to collude with power. They want to collude with the administration and the government to shut down people with whom they disagree. It's the complete and utter opposite of the spirit that the 
student protesters in the 60s were fighting for. What do you see as the downstream consequences of universities basically saying, we are not going to allow this speaker or that speaker or this speaker or that speaker? The downstream consequences of that, you actually have people who um, should be allowed to speak on college campuses. You're going to see them be banned because there's going to be someone who's going to get up and say, well, this person offends me. This person is a racist or this person's a fascist or a communist. It could be left or right. There's no end to it. There's this term that's it's used all the time in these debates, slippery slope, but it's there for a reason because it's true. You are not optimistic about this. Well, unless we have more university leadership, uh, presidents and deans and administrators being very clear in the way that, say, the University of Chicago has been in you know, issuing a statement to all incoming freshmen. You know, there are no safe spaces here. There are no trigger warnings. You're going to be made uncomfortable by things that you hear. And you know, the university is not going to come in and we're not going to comfort you. Unless we see more institutions taking that tack very early on, um, then I know, and I, I think we're going to have this drift into more and more forms of censorship, coddling, you know, once you open the door to this sort of thing. James Kerchick is a visiting fellow at Brookings. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. Child called freedom I can't call no Child called freedom just a word, yeah Child called justice I can't call no Uncomfortable, you got to get uncomfortable Hey, thanks for listening to our show on the right to speak this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Motasham with help from Daniel Shukin and Lawrence Wu. Our intern is Megan Shellong. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.